0: We are taking you behind the scenes of the National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. With unprecedented access to the scientists pushing boundaries and shaping our future, this show will take you to the cutting edge and beyond.
1: And whether you're an expert yourself or just science curious, this is the show for you. Welcome to the Turing Podcast.
0: Hello, everyone, welcome to the Turing Podcast. Today on the podcast, we welcome Dr. Miguel Arana Catania and Professor Rob Proctor from the University of Warwick, along with Dr. Felix Anselm van Leer, who works at Oxford University. We'll be discussing their recent work in using machine learning to analyze large scale peace dialogue transcripts with the aim to assist in armed conflict mediation. Miguel, Rob, and Felix, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So, before we get started, um, I'm just going to get you all to introduce yourselves. So, uh, Miguel, what's your background in research and science? How did you end up working with the Alan Turing Institute?
2: So, my background actually is a bit different. I was working initially on physics, on particle physics. Mm-hmm. But the, during some years, I was also involved in working with, with policy and, and local policy in, in Spain. And then I came in contact with uh, Rob, and we have an idea on how to apply new uh, machine learning language on these kind of issues on policy and policy, and in particular on citizen participation. And yeah, we, we made a, a project, a, a proposal. There was, uh, uh, we got a grant from uh, Nesta. And then that evolved into a more regular collaboration, and then we thought that there was really an interest on, on developing this kind of uh, application of machine learning to to improve dialogues, uh, participation, and so on. And then also working with Felix, we found that there was this possible project on, on Yemen that we found very interesting. And, yeah. Here we
0: are. Yeah, Felix, uh, tell us a bit about your background. Um, How did you come to be doing what you're doing?
3: Yeah, so my background is uh, public law and, and more specifically, constitution making. I was working on constitution making for quite a while. Um, And then I got really interested in the um, opportunities that technology might offer to better understand public input in constitution making. And so that's how I found uh, Rob and Miguel's work here at the Turing Institute. And I dropped Rob, an email and asked him whether he would be keen on collaborating a little bit. And um, yeah, then I, I joined the team. And from there, I think we found different really interesting projects um, that were some of which were connected to constitution making, others more broadly on participation in policy making and, and law making, and as well as on peace, peace negotiations.
0: Fantastic. And uh, before I go to Rob, um, you mentioned your team. So how many of you work on these projects together? And is it all the same people or?
2: Depends on, on, the, on the project. So now we're, for example, working in a project with the University on, of Oxford that is a bit larger team, with all the people working there. But I think probably we are the core part of the team who tend to work together and then uh, look who could be the interested partners and joining and collaborating. So it really depends on the nice. application.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, yeah, Rob. What's your your background, and um, how did you come to be professor and also working on these projects?
1: So, um, I'm a professor of social informatics at uh, Warwick University, and social informatics is the interdisciplinary study of the design, uses, and consequences of digital technologies that takes into account their organizational and cultural contexts. And I've been working in this interdisciplinary field for many, many years. Uh, I became a, a Turing Fellow in 2016, and since that time, my f- interest has been primarily focused on data science and AI, its applications, and how it can become embedded into different kinds of application contexts. And um, that really is how I came to be working with Miguel and then with Felix. Uh, on what is now a range of projects where we're working with um, potential users of these technologies, particularly NLP, um, to help develop applications that will actually deliver benefit to them. And I have to say, uh, our collaborations have proved to be very productive, extremely interesting, and I think um, we are demonstrating some impact within the general field of what I would call data science for public good. Uh, We are trying to deliver solutions to problems that actually can benefit uh, broader society, as the uh, examples, I think, uh, testify, whether it's helping to uh, support negotiations in uh, mediation in, in, in conflict scenarios or whether it's to help policymakers to understand evidence better uh, or to support citizens in their endeavours to input into policy making.
0: Cool. And does the um, group or sort of research programme have a name or is it Data Science for Public Good? Just sort of.
1: I think that's probably a good uh, sort of overarching uh, title for it as any.
0: I've certainly heard that um, be used before as a like, I don't know, like buzz phrase or something mm-hmm. like Data Science for Public Good. Do you feel like. Um, There's, um, not just in your own research, but this is like an emerging sort of trend or or field in of itself, or...?
1: I think it's one that's becoming more important uh, in Turing and and beyond, because I think there's a realisation that um, uh, we need to demonstrate how these technologies can be to the benefit of broader society, and not just serve the interests of, of businesses, for example, um, and, and, and corporations, and so uh, data science for public good is about thinking how you can uh, bring society members into the process of developing technologies and understand their agendas, their needs, and their requirements, so that they can uh, also benefit from what is you know a very significant field of innovation, which has potentially very dramatic effects for society and of course, one of the objectives of data science for public good is to avoid harms that might otherwise arise from using these technologies in ways that are perhaps not properly informed by by public need.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting to think about in that, you know, we live in a world now where AI and data science, but, you know, however you might define them, computing techniques in general are affecting like almost every aspect of our lives. But the number of people who work on those things is obviously quite limited, um, and yeah, are they only doing the, you know, these most advanced techniques for the purpose of business? Um, and even in the context of research, you know, how do we think about how they impact you know, wider society and how do we involve um, the wider community and, and get people's participation in, in um, the, the ways that these technologies are used? So it's a really interesting um, whole area. And I know there's a lot of other people at the Alan Turing Institute who are um, interested in thinking about these kinds of things. Um,
2: I think there's also some, something interesting with that, because in, in our projects, what we always try to do is work very closely with our partners. So, for example, in this project with the mediation organisation who is in charge, in other projects, for example, with a civil servant, with local councils and so on. And we really try to, to involve them in the, in the whole development and in the whole research every day, every meeting to be part of it. And this, I think we have seen like a very interesting this interesting learning process because usually these technologies still are a bit far away from, from the people who actually then are yeah, going to yeah. apply it. So it's a very interesting process where we try to explain what these technologies can do, what are the limitations, what are the possible applications. And it's also a very interesting part of the process how they start to learn and understand what really can be done, and how also then they start thinking on other possible applications, so I think we are in a very interesting moment where this is starting slowly but starting to to spread uh, all over society, and people are starting to really be, able, be able to imagine what they can do with it and and, and use it yes. much beyond the the original uh, possible application, as Rob said no sometimes these technologies are Developed by very specific companies who have very specific goals. Yeah, yeah. And then we're trying to take this technology out of these goals to, to this public good and public impact. So,
0: yeah, it's very, I find it very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Um, well, before we um, sort of go do a deep dive on the project itself and, and how you're using um, data science for public good or machine learning for public good, um, so we're going to talk today about this um, conflict uh, mediation project you've been working on. But could you, could some of you um, talk a bit about um, the changing nature of today's conflicts and how mediation and peace talks are becoming increasingly complex and, and why this is an interesting topic to think about in the first place?:
3: Yeah, sure, I can, I can uh, take that. So Ukraine is now kind of proving a little bit to be a bit of, of an example, but the general trend in conflicts is that conf- conflicts have become more complex, that is involving more actors. Both state and non-state actors, um, that they are becoming increasingly dynamic, fluid, and, and protracted, um, and that they that they um, uh, create situations where you have much longer peace negotiations, obviously, and with many more uh, actors involved and many more actors to to negotiate with. Um, and so, mediation processes in general try to um, try to assist. Um, oh, we haven't talked about the mediation process yet, right? Or do you want me to go on the... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah? So what
0: is the mediation process?
3: So mediation processes in generally try to... Uh, are processes where a third party, uh, usually a neutral third party, tries to um, uh, help and assist uh, parties involved in a, in, a, in a conflict to prevent, manage and resolve uh, a conflict usually by developing some kind of a, a mutual and acceptable agreement. And um, because conflicts have become much more complex and protracted, these mediation processes have become equally protected and, and complicated. And usually you have several layers of, um, of negotiation with different types of actors involved, where often it's really difficult to keep track of what has been said and where parties stand. Um, and this is, I think, where we have been approached um, to try to find a way of, of offering some sort of, um, of support in terms of orienting or orient, orientating um, um, ourselves in what is happening in this process. I mean, one
1: of the consequences of these um, more complex and protracted negotiation processes is there's a lot more data for the mediating team to make sense of. Mm. Um, in the form of transcripts or uh, quite detailed notes of every mediation session. And so uh, I think the feeling uh, from the the mediating team was that somehow perhaps data science and NLP could help them to uh, understand that data better uh, and help to manage the growing volume of data that they have to try and uh, make sense of uh, in order to steer the mediation process in a positive direction.
0: So just to back up for a second, so the mediation team, so you've been working in particular on the Yemen conflict and um, it's not something I know much about at all, but other than when I've talked to people about it who who do know about it, they say, oh, it's, it's very complex and it seems to be the perfect use case for what you're talking about here. Um, but um, so yeah. So w- when you're when you're yeah, the question I was going to ask actually, I was just thinking about it. Was um, you were mentioning Felix that traditionally conflicts have been interstate, and now we're seeing a lot of within state or complex many actors, some state some non-state. Um, so in I was thinking, you know, in a traditional conflict the Mediator might be in a, a separate country that's you know not involved in the conflict like a neutral country, but who are the mediators in this case and and um yeah what like what sort of people are they
3: so m- usually you have u uh, n missions that are ba- coordinating um all media the the entire mediation process process but you ov- obviously have many different organisations that help with aspects of and of a mediation process that are specialised in particular areas. So for instance you might have organisations that deal with the aspect of constitution making in a particular of a mediation process or others who are specialised in um, particular minorities that might be part of a conflict. Yeah. So it becomes a really complicated puzzle of, of actors that are involved also in the mediation process. In this particular case, we were working for an organization that was supporting um, the larger mediation process um, in preparing, um, in preparing negotia- basically high-level negotiations mm-hmm. um, in trying to deal with the substantive aspects of the conflict. So that might be questions around um, how do you organize uh, the Yemeni state, what are the key kind of conflict aspects. And these then feed into the main agreement and the main um, the main um, settlement, if there is any, at some point.
0: And is the organisation an NGO or? Um...
3: It's technically speaking an intergovernmental organisation.
0: What was the origin of uh, this particular research project that you guys are involved in, um, and why did you 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 come across the idea, or how did the idea originate? Of. Uh, looking at the peace dialogue transcripts in the first place.
3: I've been working for quite a while in in another context in a in a similarly kind of complex uh, post-war scenario in Libya uh, on constitution making, and back then I got in touch or I had quite a lot of interaction with with that particular organisation, and um, basically we I had a phone call where uh, where the the leader of the mediation team explained to me what they were doing in Yemen at the point, and it just happened that I was at the Turing Institute uh, back then. Um, and I knew Robin Miguel, and basically the problem that he was telling me about was that he was totally overwhelmed with the amount of data that they had. Yeah. He was very interested in the work that we were doing in uh, citizen participation and organizing different bits of data. Um, so that uh, to to a degree that it's becoming a little bit more usable and understandable and that seemed to be a perfect match the work that Rob and Miguel were doing and so we kind of explored the idea initially a little bit looked at the available data and then basically took it from there
0: Cool, um, so yeah, well, um, perhaps one of you could tell us a bit about um, this transcript data itself you know, where did it come from, um, what, what makes it useful, were there any limitations to its use in uh, for analysis?
3: What we had at hand, and that's, I think, I think the beauty of our project is, and that's uh, the reason why this hasn't been done very often, is that um, you don't have access to to data that is coming from within peace negotiations. So usually you have a lot of you have a lot of development uh, at the moment where you use AI to understand contextual aspects of of a conflict. So for instance, you analyse Twitter data, social media, etc., yeah, yeah, yeah. or you do conflict prediction um, using different kinds of data, but you very rarely get data that's coming from within a peace negotiation. Yeah. And this is what we had. Uh, basically what that organization did was that um, they had taken not verbatim notes, but rough notes of two years' worth of uh, peace negotiations, but they were fairly well-structured and representative of the key arguments of the different parties um, and were in chronological order. So I think that there were a couple, maybe Miguel can add a little bit to the way that the data was structured. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, it was um, uh, these types of rough notes that were representing what was being talked about in these negotiations and also representative to a degree of, of what the parties were saying. Obviously, there are limitations in the data. There's always a little bit of bias that comes in when you, you know, through the process of note-taking, exactly the original notes were in Arabic and you have to translate it. So yeah, I was going to ask that, actually. Yeah. yeah,
0: it was the what's the language. But exactly. so with the people writing the notes, presume yeah, they translated it.
3: Yeah, exactly. So there's obviously a risk of bias, but generally speaking, it's the best type of data that we that we have, right? And in an ideal case scenario, we would have perhaps verbatim notes, um, but we would still have the language problem, obviously, that would still need to be translated, although Rob and Miguel may, may kind, of, um, kind of flesh that out a little bit. But generally speaking, it's the best type of data that we have for these kind of processes, and as far as we know, the first time that uh, researchers have been given access to this type of data, and I think that's yeah. what makes, makes it extremely exciting.
0: I think the thing that makes it sound interesting to me is the fact that it's over 2 years and that it's you know you've got a particular format mm-hmm. presumably being I mean what was the frequency over that 2 year period was this discussions happening every month or
3: you know, think they had one meeting a month mm-hmm. right, right. Um, which then lasted like a very long meeting. Very lasted over a, uh, a, a, an entire day.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. So this is a lot of a lot of data. <laughs> yes. And
2: what's interesting, also for example, the, the the issue about language, I think it's is very important because most of this technology on machine learning and NLP is focused on English mm-hmm. because well, most of the companies are working in with English. There's much more data that they can use you not know, to train their the models or websites and everything, but actually most of these conflict probably are not originally used in the English. So this is a huge limitation. We have this, the, the lack here of having the, the, the mediation organisation who could translate the information and then we could analyse it, but probably for all the cases, that, that is not going to be the, the scenario. So I think this one thing that is important to, to, to start developing these technologies to be able to work also in, in languages that have...
1: There's a lot of languages which are what's referred to as being underserved, in that there aren't the resources that you would use to, uh, to train models um, for, the, for a particular language. And, and Arabic uh, is, is a case in point. So um, it's just to be hoped that there will be language resources for these, uh, these languages uh, developed in time. Um, and that will certainly, I think, make our ambitions to continue this work uh, more achievable.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? That the so I guess the for the listeners' benefit, the kind of AI or machine learning we're talking about here, as you mentioned earlier, is natural language processing. Mm -hmm. And you know, without needing to go into the details, it's yeah, it's pretty obvious from what you said that it depends which language you are using, how effective these tools are going to be, and when it comes to things like machine learning, that, a lot of that comes down to training data. You know. exactly. Have the machine learning models been trained on a particular language, then they're probably not going to be any use on a different language. That's um, right. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but yeah, so in this case, you were working with English transcripts, I guess, anyway. So but this, is a, this is a very interesting point. Um, so one of the tasks that your research sought to address were, was categorising the, the peace dialogue transcripts uh, saving the mediator 's time in doing this manually, so um, how, did, how did you go about doing this categorization process?
1: Well, there were two things we wanted to do. One was to take categories um, of issues that the mediating team themselves were already using because they 'd identified those categories through the process of of organizing and, and listening to the the dialogues. Mm-hmm. Um, But the other thing we thought would be interesting to do would be to see if there are what we call latent issues which the NLP tools could help surface and this might add then a different perspective onto the data. So we actually um, worked to develop two different approaches. One was to try and uh, identify text that spoke to the uh, already identified issues. Mm For example, you know, the constitution, the army or uh, resources and so on and so forth. Um, But the other was then to see, well, can we find issues that the mediating team maybe hasn't hasn't spotted, which might be helpful for them to know about. So this was a two pronged approach. And um, Miguel can tell us more about how we went about developing those models using the resources, language models that were available uh, for us. Yeah.
2: I think also this is yeah, also an interesting approach for this kind of, of problems because in the first uh, case, when we're working with basically the issues that the mediators already know that are, are useful, we are sticking to their view on the conflict. Mm-hmm. So basically in right. in this case, the machine learning basically makes it easier to do the work that they already are doing. So basically we, we yeah. can maybe analyse more so data. So they,
0: they've decided the categories, the, the issues, as Rob mentioned, yeah. and then it's putting the... Transcripts into those categories. Yeah,
2: so in that case, the machine learning doesn't help them to think differently about the conflict. It just makes their life easier because we have these machines that do the work for you. But in the other case, when we are just uh, extracting the issues from the text itself, it's a bit different because the machine learning help you to think in your problem in a very different way as you were not thinking before. In that case, in the first scenario, basically, what we were doing, when they, they already gave us these issues, they gave us also like keywords for the different issues that identify each of the of these relevant issues. And then we use these uh, model languages that are trained to understand when people are talking about the same issue, even if they are not using this specific word. So basically, these, right. these models are trained with large amount of data that are able to identify synonyms or basically when people refer to the one issue even when they don't use the, the relevant words. And that help us to find these categories. But in the second case, where we extract the, the issues from the text, what we do is we just take the, all the text together and we do a global analysis basically looking at the frequency of the words. So basically looking, okay, what are the relevant words that are appearing in in each of the texts, comparing the different texts and so on, and let's see if the machine can automatically organize the documents using a, a, a small set of very relevant words, and the machine can tell us already, okay, there is one issue, I don't know what is the issue, but many of these documents are really connected to this issue and have to do with these three, four, five words that we help us to identify what is the issue okay and it's very interesting because then it provides a very different uh, overview of the conflict to the to the mediators
0: and were there any issues in particular that the um nlp or the machine learning techniques um recognized that were uh, different somehow from the categories that the mediators would have expected
2: yeah i think there was there was uh, there was, there was very different. Is is some things that they recognize as relevant then when looking at the documents and the and and the text. So it's, it's not that they were surprised and they just discovered something that had nothing to do because of course they have been working yeah, these yeah, two yeah, years yeah. within the, within the conflict. They have, they but the, it, it, the 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 like the priority of the issues suddenly changed. Now it's not anymore their list ordered by what they think is relevant in their heads and 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 relevance for talking about this this problem. But it was more just the priorities coming from the text itself. So if the if the if the parties and the, the people involved have been talking a lot about one issue, that will go into the top. So, so it lets yeah. the, the text prioritise itself the issues. So this is a very different approach.
0: And um, so the, the, the relative importance then is, I guess, yeah, to how much something is discussed, but um, w- would it also be useful for them to, I don't know, look, look at the things which were less discussed and, and maybe focus on those issues as well. Mm. Is, is, was it helpful in that context?
1: Yes, and it's important to remember that um, these tools are not magic. They don't do the analysis um, autonomously. Uh, they are really useful in helping uh, a member of the mediation team, in this case, to find relevant structure and content in the data Mm. which they can then explore in more detail so it doesn't remove the need for the mediating team to to uh, bring their own understanding and their own efforts to analyzing the data but it helps to uncover structure that makes that process more efficient
0: and i think another thing that would be interesting to learn about this um, is um, as well as the techniques you're using to do this um, I guess you would call it categorization mm-hmm. of of issues um, what was the um, uh, platform by which the mediators were able to sort of uh, access the the um, what they what you'd done in the categorization? Did you have to build software tools to to allow them to do that? Yes,
1: we did but before we get into that, perhaps we should also mention that um, uh, one of the uh, One of the issues that the mediating team is interested in is whether the parties are moving apart or getting closer together around a particular issue. So apart from being able to uh, map the content uh, of the dialogues to different issues which will allow the, the mediating team to explore those issues in more detail and identify who's talking about that issue from what party and so forth, we're also able to... Um, demonstrate if the parties are moving closer or further apart around particular issues, which is important when you think about the job of managing a dialogue, you want to know uh, it's what if it 's working exactly, uh, which turns out to be important for a number of reasons, not least for planning the next stage of the negotiation process. Um, so uh, th- those are the two sort of really important I think tools that came out of of the work
0: so the two uh, the two being the categorization of issues yeah. we 've already discussed, and the second thing uh, being um, measuring the, uh, yeah distance. how do you measure yeah how close people are on a given issue uh,
1: and how that 's changing over time. We had two years of of data, so we were able to 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 measure over the, that period of time whether over a particular issue, parties, and which parties were moving closer together or which were moving further apart. And um, I think that was perhaps something that we hadn't anticipated at the beginning, but it emerged out of the, uh, the very um, uh, systematic way that we worked with the mediating team. You know, we had weekly meetings with them where we explored the results of preliminary analysis. We got their feedback and that helped them then to understand more about what could be done, you know, things they hadn't perhaps thought about at the beginning. That all emerged out of that process that we had of participatory design and development of the tools. Uh, and I think um, the, the two different kinds of analysis that we're able to do now have proved very useful to the, to the mediating team.
2: I think, may you connect into that? I think this is an important point because... When we're trying to uh, bring technology to, to to the applications and to people who maybe are not so familiar with technology, always there is a risk that the, uh, the <clears throat> people who are going to use this technology look at the technicians as, or researchers as the experts on technology. Right, right. So basically the expert is saying what the technology does, what are the limitations, and how it's going to be used. Mm-hmm. And usually it tends to be this really... Uh, um, a bit hierarchical relationship in that sense. So um, it is it's, it's very rare, at least at the beginning, that the person that at the end is going to be really using the technology, is able to define how they want to use technology. First, because they are not familiar with technology, and also because still are not able maybe to define the limits. So for example, when we started this, this project, at the beginning we were focusing more on this first part of the project, the categorization, because it's a much more common uh, use of this kind of technology right. and language yeah. technology. In, in, for that, So we basically came up with, okay, first we can do this. And it's through these meetings with them that we understood, okay, they really need this second application for them. It's really even much more important the categorization, this um, the measuring this distance between parties. So now we have to be able to change your technology to fit their needs. Mm. And this only can happen if you are really working together. Through a, yeah, long... in that collaborative yeah, process. Yeah, otherwise it's impossible. And then at the end, they end doing whatever you tell them that is going to be done because you're, yeah. let's say, the expert on that.
0: This is a really interesting point because I feel like the, the the mediators have done a good job in that they've come to you as researchers, mm-hmm. as opposed to going to like some company that has a software tool who's going to come to them and say, "Yes, we here we go. We've got a, a, a you know a black box software tool that has categorized your." Your, your data for you and here's the outputs, whereas, whereas you as researchers can go to them and say, well listen this is a research project, so this is what we think will work and um, let's have the conversation back and forth. Too. And then you end up coming with, with a slightly different uh, goal uh, in addition to the original one, yeah. um, which is really interesting.
3: And there, there's another aspect to it I think that is extremely important, especially in these very highly sensitive contexts is the way that the output is being interpreted in the end because obviously there's always a danger that's what Rob explained a little bit earlier that you take whatever the whatever is being presented as an analysis as truth right Mm -hmm. but and there's perhaps a little bit of a a, you know a temptation of of taking this and saying okay well this is how the dialogue works but really there's a lot of work that needs to be going into the interpretation of whatever the output is and I think our Constant collaboration or kind of the the weekly meetings prepared the mediators to use the tool in a responsible way and and in a way that is really meaningful to them um, um, and not falling into the traps of of or, you know whatever the data is being uh, you know
1: well, assuming that the the algorithms can do the work exactly yeah it has yeah. to be a partnership in which the uh, analytical expertise of the uh, of the people involved the mediating team remains at the center of the process
0: yeah this is a this is a, a software to assist them mm-hmm. not to do it for them yes, yes. and how, how do you go about um you obviously the the frequency of meetings you have mentioned a couple of times which sounds like really it's really important but how do you go about sort of Explaining the limitations of what you're doing, and and, and and but not just the limitations, but what it can do for them, um, to people who are you know not themselves software engineers or computer scientists.
1: There's no there's no set um, process for that. The important thing is to um, provide um, support to to the people you're working with, to encourage them to ask questions, to articulate what they think they would like to come out of the project and then taking that and and working with it and coming back with, well, here's what we think that means, Um, we can produce this output or that output, how does that match with your expectations? And the idea is to work up a joint understanding where we learn what their objectives are Mm -hmm. and they learn what is technically possible. And, and these two different viewpoints can come together. It really involves a lot of listening, and indeed, we we made transcripts of our meetings with uh, our partners so that we had a, a detailed record of what yeah. they were saying, uh, and, and we could refer to that uh, when it then came to, you know, subsequent discussions. Um, so the key here is to really devote a lot of effort to listen. And to try and interpret back to uh, to the people you're working with what you think they're saying, and that way build up uh, a, a, an understanding, which is grounded in, in 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 the realities of what they're trying to do.
0: So, so out of this, this process emerged this like second goal of um, you know measuring the distance that um, the the parties involved in the 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 the, the peace dialogue. Mm. Uh, you know how far they were on any given issue from each other Mm. so I'm interested to know like how would you go about measuring such a thing it sounds like something would be very very hard to measure
1: indeed. Uh, It is and I think it's I'm not aware of work like that being done uh, in other application areas I mean Miguel can again speak to uh, in more technical detail
2: how we did that. Yeah, basically what we did, we use this uh, machine learning models that are trained with large amount of data. This also, to, to just to simplify a bit to in, in case somebody's listening and don't really know how this, this works, basically these models are trained with tens of thousands of books and, and web pages and whatever, and learn to I- to identify how sentences are constructed, what words go together, how what the meanings probably a similar or related or whatever. So they really understand the structure of language and can have a kind of representation of each of the words in, in each context.
0: And these are the sort of NLP, natural language processing models. Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah, yeah. This
2: is what usually is called language models. <clears throat> and then when you have one language model, in this, this case, train on these English books, web pages, whatever then you can use it for new documents, in this case these this dialogues. So in that case what we did is, at the end it was something really simple. Basically we take all the sentences, that each party is saying about each of the, the issues, and the model already has a mathematical, like a numerical representation of each of the words. So in some sense the model can identify the, each word by some numbers, that you can represent in a, in a plot, basically, in also a simple image. You can imagine that if we uh, draw the, this these words, words that have a similar meaning are going to appear together in the, in, the, in the plot, and words that have very different meaning are going to appear very af- far from each other. It's a bit of simplification, but it's this kind of idea that then is really represented by these numbers. So basically, if you are talking, for example, about one issue, and then you start adding up these words, these numbers, you're going to keep going in this the same direction because all these words, like, point same to the same line. direction, while if you suddenly change the topic and talk about other things, then you will start, like, moving in this plot to other direction of the plot. So at the end, basically, we just need to do that. We take what one party has said about one issue, all the words, all the sentences, and we try to see in which direction in this, like, plot of words they are moving. So if two parties basically are using the same kind of words, the same kind of meanings, they are talking very similar to each other, they go into the same direction, and if two parties, even where they're talking about the same issue, they use very different concepts, very different meaning, because they're really opposing in what they're proposing, they will move very far from each other. So it's a simple representation, but it's based on how already these words can be represented in this kind of plots and and, and spaces where the directions, to simplify, have a meaning related to the words. So basically we just...
0: So to use a perhaps oversimplified example, um, imagine if one of the uh, parties in the peace talks was using sort of overwhelmingly negative language on one particular issue and the other party was using much more positive language then you would see that divergence in the...
2: And, but these this representations, these numerical representations are very complex. So that could be one of the dimensions, like positive or negative, where you already would see like how they are apart from each other. But it could be also just on, on many different axes. So it could really uh, get a lot of knowledge about what people are talking about. Maybe it's not specifically positive or negative, but maybe, I don't know, we're talking about the presidency and they are mentioning one structure of presidency that... Use some type of words, and then another another type of presidency that use other words. So really, any
0: kind of dimension. If you're calling it a distance metric, then the larger would mean they're further apart. Yeah, so the yeah. yeah. So you want to minimize it in a sense. Exactly. So, um, exactly. And were there like um, okay? Well, maybe I'm getting hit, skipping ahead to the results here. But were there? like given uh, certain issues um, did the metric, was the metric really high for some and really low for others?
2: This is what uh, it seems to appear from the data. Again, as we said, it's important to have an interpretation of this data by the mediator. So we cannot just think, because this is the, what Felix was mentioning before, now it could be, sometimes there's this temptation of looking just at this number and say, okay, no, this is five, this is 10, that's it, no? This is the problematic issue and this is not. It, this is just just a clue that then the mediators have to take to go back to the data by themselves, look really at the transcript, and and agree or disagree with the with the reinterpretation. Mm. Okay, so it's just it's a patterns and clues that we found that then we gave them back to the mediators, and they may agree in some cases, and in some cases maybe not. Maybe there's a case where really the kind of discussions and the and the text was really similar. So the machine was not able to identify huge differences. But there's small, subtle differences that are crucial. And then the mediator said, No, well, here we know that there is much more difference than. But at least we give them a first approach that makes them a bit easier. Or also to look at issues that maybe they were not so concerned about and then right. they can that's go what and I check was it a yeah,
0: yeah, you know, I I'm imagining in the case where there is a certain issue which they thought sort of think well well that issue is okay but then they they see that this that's high scoring on the distance between the two parties yeah. um and then they may think ah actually maybe we should revisit that and maybe even vice versa although you you just spoke to a caveat of that which yeah. is that it you know in more nuanced issues perhaps the language might come up as being similar yet that doesn't necessarily mean that they're on the same page um well, were you about to say something about that? Or I?
1: Well, no, just to reinforce the point that um, NLP remains quite a blunt instrument. Mm. These language models have certainly uh, made it possible to deliver more complex, sophisticated uh, analysis of, of, of textual data, um, but they don't, they don't replace um, the need to uh, or, or they don't themselves constitute ground truth, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, they provide ways to interrogate the data. They suggest particular um, parts of the data to look at more closely. They may challenge assumptions, which leads to validation or checking of those assumptions. So I think it helps. they help to make the process overall more robust mm-hmm. by providing... Um, uh, pointers to, uh, to where the data uh, can be or should be looked at more closely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that way, I think it can help to make the process overall more systematic, more robust, but it's not a substitute for the effort of, of no, a, a human it's, it's expertise. It's, ena- it's
0: actually enabling them to do it,
1: it, more. It, it's, a, it's a design to assist them. Uh, and perhaps can make the process more robust, more systematic, more reproducible, uh, and thereby it uh, will deliver benefits because it's able to do that.
0: And just to go back to the question I had earlier, which is um, if if you are one of these people who is the mediators mm-hmm. using the software tools that you um, built for them to um, uh, to sort of see the results of your um, you know machine learning uh, stuff, um, what what would that what would that look like to them? What would they what would they do? How would, they, how would they then know which part of the transcript to go back to?
2: I think in, in, in this case, first we tried to organize the, the work together with them so it was useful for them. So what we tried first is to, the first part, to categorize this, uh, all these different texts of the, of the dialogues in a simple um, database where it would be easy for them to just identify each of the texts with one of tag, let's say, one category. Mm-hmm. And they could just filter by these categories and find right. the text. So to make it very easy you know, not not a complex, not a software or a complex thing that they something they could use easily. Um, then of course the, the the next part when we are producing these new these new graphs and plotting the the distance and so on. At the end we need to produce a specific report for this conflict. Mm-hmm. And this of course there was also this first research work uh, where we are just starting to test these tools and so on. But the objective also of this is. To, to then keep working on this and to be able then to produce tools that maybe are easy to use by themselves so they can really play with them and introduce new documents and new text and new everything and, and keep using not only in this case but in other scenarios. so But it, we are really starting to work on, on these issues and this is the first time that we're, this is being used, so yeah, yeah. it's still a long time until.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, okay, well, so bearing that in mind that, that it is a research project, and you said and this is the first time that these tools have been used for this particular task. Are uh, are the conflict mediation team you collaborated with uh, uh, still using these tools, uh, like sort of in the field now? I mean, I I know the conflict's still ongoing, so Mm -hmm. is the peace talks still ongoing? And uh, what's the impact that your research is having with them at the moment?
3: I think we had fairly, we had very positive feedback on the way that the tool worked. I think that, as Miguel said, there needs to be a couple of improvements to you know make them use the tool on a regular basis but I think they have already used the tool to um, you know in in several presentations with be it the UN or or different sponsors to really um, show a different you know give a different perspective on the way that they have been working in the dialogue and the impact that they have had in the dialogue and also to emphasize what was happening. and I think they're very, very keen on um, because they've been they're involved in several other um processes as well to translate the experiences um um from Yemen into other countries. So at the moment we're negotiating with them or kind of exploring whether there would be ways of using similar tools in in another dialogue.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And I think the the feedback that we've had um as Felix was saying, it very been very positive. You know, we we produce essentially historical analysis on on the data that's already been collected, and the next stage will be to uh, to use the tools on new data, and to bring it into a conflict resolution process, um, so that it's it's used um, in, in a in a uh, a more uh, uh, Active, active way uh, yeah. um, it, it, to, to support that process. But the feedback we've had is that um, they think that you know, this provides a new approach to conflict mediation, which they think needs to be adopted more widely, um, that they feel it will make the, the processes uh, more manageable, that it will make uh, them more reproducible, it will lead to more robust and... Uh, perhaps more uh, productive outcomes and so they're very much I think um, endorsing how effectively a new methodology is emerging uh, out of the project uh, which involves the use of these tools alongside their expertise so it is in some respects I think from my interpretation that feedback quite potentially transformational. For how they'll go about doing dialogue, uh, conflict mediation in the future.
0: Well, I don't know if it's if it's too early to ask this, but I mean, you mentioned Felix that they'd spoken to the UN about sort of their results of having used uh, the the tool that's come from your research. Is there any sort of uh, particular like outcome from their you know having used your tool on the um, peace uh, dialogue that that is? that they think that they wouldn't have been able to to achieve without it. Um I,
3: that that's uh, impossible to answer not um uh, but this is because the process in Yemen has basically stalled. Um and so they weren't able to implement um the the findings or basically the learnings from that project in a in a new so process right, right. um at the moment. But I think on the whole I, what what is important to I think it's really important to highlight the limitations of a tool like this, but it's also perhaps worthwhile to think about how we did things previously, right? Um, previously we had manual reports that were written up. You always uh, depended on uh, on the interpretation of a particular proceeding, on how a mediator or a, or a particular person involved that was interpreting these these processes. If you look at a process that is drawn out over five or six years, you can imagine how you build up, uh, you know, um, prejudices, you have a particular interpretation of things, you have changing staff, you know, and then the process, it, it, you know, it's very hard to understand what is actually happening and kind of distance yourself from this interpretation. I think what our tool is offering is just a new perspective, you know, the, all the tools, these, these approaches are offering are new perspectives on these dialogues that, uh, that will, I think, um, um, just offer um, um, perhaps new ways of, of looking at these dialogues mm. and adapting these dialogues and perhaps even to provide some sort of you know, better scrutiny, accountability for the mediators that are involved in these processes.
0: Are you optimistic that you know ten years from now this will have started to move towards a common practice, or that like better techniques will have been developed? Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, It happens always, no? All the technology <laughs> that start to be useful and efficient, of course, like spread because yeah. why are you not going to be yeah, more efficient? No? And also, coming back to what I mentioned before, this a very particular kind, this kind of technology, are very particular kind of technologies because we are used to. Previous technologies, kind of machines that basically help us to be more efficient than what we're already doing. So this is a tradition, uh, interpretation of technology. But in that case, we have technology that can, on one side, make us be more efficient than what we're already doing, but the other side, this is a a technology that is is in, in this framework of artificial intelligence that had to do with intelligence, had to do with being able to think in a way that we are not, we were not able to think before. So they are yeah. expanding the, the, or thinking abilities or, or or like intellectual abilities to analyze, in this case language or dialogues or whatever, mm-hmm. as we were not able to do before. So it's, 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 a, it's different. It's not just we are more efficient and well, that's why we need to use technology. It also allows us to think in things or look at things
0: in a much more powerful way. So this is a great uh, compliment, to, to compliment to what we are. Yes. That's really quite like sort of profound thing you've said there, which I'm going to ask you sort of a generic, a more general question based on that, which is that do you see like AI in quotation marks as m- not as maybe a lot of people in the public might see it as sort of a thing that's separate from us and it is like, you know, you know, separate from us, but it's, it's, it's an enhancement to our intelligence or like that's basically what it is, like that's what software is, right?
2: I think I absolutely think that is the way, and especially in this case that we are talking about language, mm-hmm. because all thinking is strongly connected to language, and how do we use language so if that help us to do different things with language or read things in a different way or being able to like this, not just take thousand and thousands of documents and to be able to read all of them, compare all of them, and understand the main ideas for all of them together. It's something that you can never do manually. It doesn't matter how many people you have, how many times you have. Mm-hmm. It's a difference. So it, it expands what we can do. So I think this is a crucial difference. So I'm the optimistic here. Yeah, I'm not sure. If... Say, <laughs>
3: is... Miguel is always super, super optimistic <laughs> about about what machine learning can do. I I think mm-hmm. I, my my whole the whole journey that I've had so far with Rob and Miguel was obviously also an, something you know really. Mind expanding, and I can see a lot of value ext- a lot of value in, in the ways that these tools have been working. but I can also see how really tricky it is um, to implement these things in a way that is responsible and meaningful because you will have to really develop a deep understanding of why the tools are producing particular results, how they are re- uh, producing the results and it's very easy to just look at the uh, at the at whatever the machine is outputting and take it for granted and I th- and that's a lazy approach uh, that many people me included would take very quickly and make jump into to conclusions yeah, so yeah, i think yeah. as much as i uh, i agree with with miguel that the technology is getting better and better and that it is a way in the future i think we have to think a lot about how we are implementing it, how we are using it, and also the type of knowledge that we will have to acquire in order to use these tools responsibly. It seems
0: like there's a a little bit of a trade-off between being as um, robust as possible versus being as uh, responsive as possible, because as Rob was saying, like in this case, it's like you're analysing historical data and... um, you could, you know, you could spend years, you know, perfecting your models on this particular conflict that's already occurred in the past, um, but that, that wouldn't be of any use. Whereas, as you said, like to be able to do something active, like in a in an ongoing conflict, would obviously be actually useful. Um, but then it comes with the downside of, you know, how much time do you have to figure out exactly how your language uh, machine learning software really works and. How to not take its, you know, its, uh, its, its uh, results as just.
1: And this is what we continually emphasise. Like I, as I said earlier, this is not magic. It's not better than human understanding. It's a tool that can support and augment human understanding of, of data, and so it should be treated in that way, um, and and not as a substitute. For, for the effort of actually uh, understanding the data. It's a way of helping to do that, uh, but it's not a substitute for it. And I think that's, to me, that's an important thing to emphasize about um, if we look to the future and applications of what we, what we call AI. Uh, mm-hmm. I prefer the term machine learning because I think in most cases, if not all, there's no... Well, I don't believe in the concept of artificial intelligence. I think it's an oxymoron, to be honest. Um, so I think we, we have to develop a much better, more sophisticated understanding of, of, of these technologies that avoids um, uh, loading onto them capabilities that they can't deliver. Mm. Because that, that way leads to, I think, very potentially dangerous outcomes. Mm.
0: Felix, did you have something you wanted to say about that as well?
3: <laughs> no, I, I was just, like, to to just use a very practical example, I don't so I, because you were making the point that, you know, I don't want this learning uh, to be misinterpreted as, you know, everyone has to become a data scientist and understand very precisely how, you know, the NLP tools are calculating the distance between. I don't think that this is the point. I think it's more, how do we interpret this? And there's, I haven't you know, there's, there's, I think, a temptation to once you abstract the data from, um, or what is, what you see from a, a human, from human production, it's temp- tempting to see it as, you know, as, as what you are seeing. So let, let let's be a little bit more concrete. If you have, a, if someone writes up a report, from menu uh, as a human writes up a report about how a mediation process has been going. You know, okay, this is a person who has written it. They have interpreted it in a particular way, and so I will have to interpret whatever this person has written in there, uh, also in a particular way. I think there's a little bit of a danger that once you put a machine in between, and you see a report that is produced mm-hmm. or that builds on m- machine build, uh, you know, machine-based data, mm-hmm. to take it as a non-interpretation, non-interpre- you know, as like some kind of, um, mm-hmm. yeah. As a truth, as as Rob says, so for instance, we had one response to uh, to the tool where they were saying, "Oh yeah, but so if you take the party distances, right, um, you can see that some parties are closer together and others are further away, right? But we don't even we can't even take the data that we have there as any kind of real truth because." the parties will present themselves in a particular way they will say things they don't really mean because they use language strategically okay. so they might be yeah. saying you know i really want a presidency in you know month one and on the other one uh, uh you know the other day they say um i'd, I'd prefer a different ty- type of system right a political system yeah. so it's not like Oh, yeah, these are the party distances, and this is what it really is, but you have to interpret not only the way that the data is produced but also what lies behind that data right. and I think yeah. you would do it more easily if someone writes up things and you would because you have a more natural inclination to kind of to question these things once you put the machine in between, at least for me, I had yeah. the experience that you have a tendency to say, "Oh yeah, oh, this is how it goes." actually not you have to think about the process in multiple ways. Yeah dimensions and this is what i mean by you have to understand and learn how to interpret these things not so much the tools themselves the technicality but what is it that you're seeing and that's i think perhaps even a cultural thing perhaps that we'll need to change
2: it's a matter of experience i think that uh, we need a lot of uh, applications of these tools again and again and again until we really start building the culture of what do they mean?
1: What, know how they use? I think Phoenix's point about understanding uh, the underlying processes that generate the data is really important. Exactly. The fact that, to a certain extent, parties involved in these kinds of processes, these peace negotiations, are exercising a sort of performativity,
3: right? Uh, right. They are presenting yeah, themselves
1: yeah. in certain ways at certain times because There are tactical, strategic objectives that, you know, are driving the way that they present themselves. And, you know, you cannot, if you remove understanding of those processes that the mediating team have because they've been exposed to them over many, many different situations, then, you know, you're losing something um, from, from the understanding of that data. And so you need that expertise to complement what the machine can do to really uh, have a a more robust understanding of what it means at any particular time around any particular issue and the position of any particular party, for example. So understanding how the data is produced is critical, and that's expertise, one of the kinds of expertise that that you know, these people bring to those processes. Mm-hmm. And we don't have a way of substituting for that. And I don't think we want to. Uh, we want to make it easier to exercise that expertise um, so that they can be more confident in the conclusions that they draw.
0: Mm-hmm. It's augmenting the expertise, yeah. which goes back to what Miguel was saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, thanks very much uh, to the three of you for agreeing to come on the Turing podcast. Um, just before we let you go, um, where can li- our listeners find out more about this research online
1: we are just um, completing a paper which will be published we're hopeful uh, about in um, a journal a data for policy uh, we're just making revisions now and actually we'll submit it uh, next week and i think that's open access so
2: but we already have a, <clears throat> a first version of the, of the paper of that data. is public, it's in archive,
1: yeah, yeah. and it's uh, and mediation, machine learning computers. for mediation in armed conflicts yeah. is the title. So. And we have papers on other related work that we've been doing on citizen participation in democratic processes, um, a number of papers which explore very similar themes in the sense that we're trying to understand how to apply data science to solve real-world problems um, in, in the understanding uh, of, of textual data.
0: Wow, fantastic.
1: I'm sure we can give you a few links to go with the... Uh, yes, we can drop <laughs> some links in the episode
0: there. notes. Yeah. All right, uh, Rob, Felix and Miguel, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank,
1: Thank you everyone. for having us. and Sun. You can listen and follow via the link in the description or by searching and Sun on Instagram.